Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold. I'm very much looking forward to having a return visit from my guest, Dr. Doug Grutheis. He is author of many books. The one I'm looking at right in front of me is called Christian Apologetics, a comprehensive case for biblical faith. And if you accidentally drop this on your foot, you will break all five toes because it's a big, big book. But we're talking today about atonement. Doug is a uh, professor at Denver Seminary and um, a brilliant thinker. Doug, welcome back to the show. Thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, you know, my book is pretty heavy. You can also use it for weightlifting or door stops. So <laughs> yeah, I tried propping a door open with it, and it works great. It works? Yeah. yeah. But every time I open this book, and it's not a book that you sit down and read in one sitting, you, you, you pick this up and you spend an hour with it, and then you pick up and spend another hour with it. Every time I pick it up, I'm learning all kinds of amazing things from your, this book, so thank you for that. You're welcome. All right, now atonement. This is a very hotly debated topic, and I also want to let you know that my friend Jeff, who was my guest from previous hour, is joining me. So Jeff, say hi to Doug. Hi, Doug. Just so you can tell our voices apart, and he's probably going to fire a couple questions at you too, because we find this topic to be so hotly debated right now there's so um, much heat on the topic of atonement. So let's just start with what is it? Yes, well, let me give you a little background. The book you referred to, Christian Apologetics, A Comprehensive Case of Biblical Faith, was first published in 2011, and that was about 750 pages. And then I decided that was too short, so I added eight more chapters, and now it's about 850 pages. And two of the chapters I added that I think are very significant, I think I've worked the hardest on, are two chapters defending the atoning work of Jesus. One is called The Atonement, Stating It Properly, and the other one is called The Atonement, Defending It. And that's about 45 pages of that book. Because I had taught the first edition of the book many times at Denver Seminary and elsewhere. And I realized that I had spent a lot of time defending the deity of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. And I, talk about, I talked about Christ's worldview, that he was an exorcist. I addressed his moral teachings and so on. And, of course, his teaching of, of God and salvation. But I didn't have enough on what's called the work of Christ. I had a lot on what theologians call the person of Christ. So I thought, well, I better add a few more pages. And then I thought, I better add a whole new section. No, I better add a whole new chapter. And in fact, I ended up with two chapters, because this really is an apologetic issue, along with things like uh, the virginal conception of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. But the meaning of the death of Christ is, of course, crucial, because uh, he was a man born to die. Uh, He came to live a perfect life in our place, and he came to die for us. A lot of people, when they summarize what they believe in Christ, they'll say, well, I believe Christ died for my sins. 
died for my sins. There's a lot to unpack in that statement. And so one way of looking at it, or one element of the atoning, um, of the work of Christ is his atoning death. So that's what I spent so much time on. Atonement basically means to cleanse or to make right or restore. And we see this in Scripture, not, of course, only in the New Testament, but the classic text that predicts the suffering and atoning work of Christ is in Isaiah 53, 4-6. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's Isaiah 53, 4-6. And Isaiah 53 is referred to, I think, 10 or 11 times in the New Testament. So, the whole Bible is pointing towards the saving, sacrificial work of Christ. A key idea, you see it in this verse in Isaiah, is this idea of substitution, right? He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds, we are healed. And we hear this idea of atonement a lot. Uh, People say, what can I do to atone for my wrongdoing, or what can be done to atone for previous injustices? And ultimately, the problem that we humans face is our sin before the face of God and against God, who is infinitely holy. So there's this huge chasm, this uh, yawning abyss between us and God morally. Now, God is everywhere all the time. He's omnipresent. It's not that he's somehow distant in his being, but our sins have separated us from God, as Isaiah says elsewhere. So how can that be addressed? That's really the ultimate question of salvation. And, of course, one way of dealing with this problem is just to deny that God exists at all. So if there's no God, we don't have to worry about sinning against God. We don't have to worry about atonement. But the problem is that there is a God. It's not a problem. But the problem for atheism is that God exists. And in fact, as I argue in Christian apologetics, we have tremendous reasons from science and from philosophy to believe there is a creator and designer of the universe. And uh, good reason to believe that God is the basis of morality ultimately. So the atheism option fails. Now, other religions will say uh, that we have to atone for our own sin through karma and reincarnation, that we have bad karma in this life that we have to uh, atone for through suffering in the next life and the next life, and eventually we can get rid of our bad karma and produce good karma and then be able to leave this horrible wheel of birth and rebirth and attain some spiritual enlightenment. But there are all kinds of problems with that worldview, but let me just limit it to this. 
we cannot possibly atone for our own sin because we are the guilty ones. Right. You know, and we are sinners against an infinitely holy God, and no amount of good works is going to compensate for sin against an infinitely holy God who is perfect. Something has to be done. Now, some people might say, well, all right, it's not karma and reincarnation, but it's just affirming the existence of God and then trying to do enough good deeds to merit paradise. That would be the view of Islam. Mm -hmm. Well, the same problem occurs. We cannot offer one iota of good works. Uh, Isaiah also says that all of our supposed righteousness is like filthy rags to God. So if the problem is going to be addressed, it has to be addressed from the top down. Mm -hmm. From God to us. So that's where the substitutionary work of Christ comes in. Mm-hmm. Doug, just as an aside, don't you have to believe in God to be an atheist? Well, you deny the existence of God, but then atheists often have the viewpoint of uh, there is no God and I hate him. You know, <laughs> they're yeah. often very upset with the God who supposedly doesn't exist. Yeah. But I, you need the concept of God in order to be an atheist. Yeah. You definitely need that. I get in no arguments with people over the tooth fairy. Right. Exactly. Yeah. All right. I am fascinated by your, your research on this. And in uh, Doug's book, Christian Apologetics, what is this the third edition or the second edition? Yes, this is the second edition. The first edition came out in 2011, and this one came out about a year ago. Okay, awesome. And we're going to continue to explore atonement and you, you talked about it uh, really well. You set it up really well. And there seems to be a lot of pushback uh, in circles today about this whole idea. They, they, they call God some, some angry, almost like describe him like some angry toddler who's got to throw his tantrum and he's got to throw his wrath somewhere. So he punishes his son. And I thought, oh boy, are people missing out on the beauty of Scripture? And, and you talked about on your your video that I watched a couple of times about the cross was a tri a, a trinity a triune decision. Right. Yeah, people have this idea that if Jesus takes our punishment in our place, then this would be divine child abuse. You'd have the heavenly Father sending his sinless Son and then punishing his sinless Son for what we did wrong. Now, what human father? would punish his own son for someone else's wrongdoing. Well, we're talking about God here. This makes a difference. It's not that somehow the son was reluctant to come and be the atoning sacrifice for our sin. We know from Philippians chapter 2 that he did not, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant and even mm-hmm. suffering unto death. So, He said, I lay down my life of my own accord. No one takes it from me. So in John 3.16, we see God so so loved the world, he sent his only son, Jesus. But in Philippians 2, we see that Jesus consented to that. It was uh, a decision, if you will, of the whole Trinity Mm -hmm. that uh, Christ would come. Now, the son is the one who dies for the sins of the world, not the father, not the spirit. But everything that that God does is, if we want to put it this way, an agreement 
among the three members of the Trinity. We have one God in three persons. Mm-hmm. We don't have three gods, but each person, while being eternal and self-existent and so on, has different functions. So it's the Son who comes to earth to atone for our sin, uh, not the Father, not the Spirit. Mm-hmm. But, you know, some people even reject the idea of what's called propitiation, which means satisfying divine justice through sacrifice, mm-hmm. by saying, you know, that it is like a divine child abuse. Right. That's the term that's used. Uh, and that really misses the mark in so many ways, uh, because, as I said, the Son was willing to come out of love to die for our sins. It right. wasn't some kind of a conflict. Now, the only struggle, of course, would be in the garden before Jesus went to the cross. He he uh, prayed and said, God, if, it, if there's any other way, but let your will be done. He knew he had to drink the cup. In fact, the cup means the cup of wrath. He had to take the punishment or the wrath of God in our place. And he knew that would be horrendous, but that's why he came to earth in order to do that. Mm. Now, do we have a couple more minutes here? Well, we, we probably should break right now. Okay. Uh, yeah, because so, I want to get into propitiation, and yeah. that takes some explanation. Yeah, so let's do that. Let's uh, take a break. We'll be right back with Dr. Doug Grotheis, and his book is called Christian Apologetics. It's a comprehensive guide for biblical faith. It's a doozy, but it's uh, it's worth worth having in your library. We'll take a break. Be right back. Hi there, and welcome. If you are a new listener, we want to officially welcome you with a free welcome packet gift. Request yours today at MyFaithRadio.com. So glad to be talking about atonement today with Dr. Doug Grotheis and also in studio with me is my friend Jeff Verdorn, who was my previous guest on Guide Talk. So he was nice enough to stick around. I think he's got some questions of his own. I will unleash him at some point. But, uh, Doug, right before the break, you were saying that you wanted to get into propitiation. So let's do that. Yes, that's a word you don't hear too often. It's a somewhat technical theological word, but it's very significant. The NIV translation will sometimes say sacrifice of atonement. But I think the Greek word is better uh, represented when we use this older word propitiation. It means to satisfy divine justice through sacrifice. So let me read you a classy example of this. This is from Romans chapter 3, 23 through 26. And I'm using the English Standard Version here. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus." A similar emphasis can be found in 1 John 4.10. But when you read through the book of Romans, you see that Paul is building a case against the human race, that we have sinned, we have suppressed the truth, 
we have violated our conscience and we are guilty before God. And Romans 1 says that the, the wrath of God abides against unrighteousness. So what do we do with the wrath of God? Some people say, well, why couldn't God just snap his fingers and forgive us? Okay, I forgive you. That's all there is to it. Well, as St. Anselm said, it doesn't take the holiness of God seriously enough. And when you read the book of Romans, you see there's this terrible problem of the sinfulness of sin and the holiness of God and the wrath of God against sin. But this is where Christ comes in. So, verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That is such a profound statement. Because how does God remain just and justify us when there's this huge chasm, this gap between holy God and unholy human beings? Well, that's where the incarnation and the crucifixion comes in. So Jesus satisfies the divine justice through his sacrificial death on the cross. He not only pays our debt that we could not pay ourselves. He also bears our punishment. So if he is our substitute, this is sometimes called penal substitution, then the wrath of God is satisfied and justified through a mediator. So we don't have to receive it. We can receive salvation, not the wrath of God, by trusting in Jesus Christ. That's the glorious gospel. But what I found in my research is that some people, even evangelicals, are trying to understand the work of Jesus without propitiation. They'll say, no, God loves us. He's not angry with us. The problem is all from our side. So Jesus came to reconcile us to God and to heal us, because the problem is in us. God has nothing but love for us. Well, biblically, God is love, of course, but the love of God and the holiness of God are equally ultimate, right? So a just and holy God uh, has to oppose sin. He can't just wink at it or snap his fingers and it's gone. So we see that Jesus bore our sins and takes our punishment. Another scripture, 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And that's quoting Isaiah 53. And Isaiah 53 is quoted many times in the New Testament. So this, this is gloriously good news. And what we want to do as sinners is either deny the holiness of God or the sinfulness of sin to try to close the gap between God and us on our own. But there is no way we can do that. Uh, the only way the gap is closed is by God coming to us in the person of Christ to live a perfectly righteous life for us, obeying the law perfectly in our place, and then to die an atoning death, mm -hmm. a propitiate, propitiatory death. And I found in my research that it was not only cults and other religions who were denying this, but uh, some people claiming to be Christians said, no, that's too violent. We have to 
get rid of that idea of punishment. So some people are trying to hold to another element of the atonement at the expense of propitiation, and that other element is called expiation. So propitiation is really the image of the shrine. It's a a sacrifice made before God for atonement. Expiation is more like the disinfecting of sin. So think of John one twenty nine when John the Baptist sees Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So the idea of expiation is more like a bath, if you will. It's being cleansed. And we have that language in Scripture. You know, we've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. Mm-hmm. So we're cleansed of sin, and the enmity between us and God is taken away from both sides. So God's wrath is propitiated through the death of Christ, and the death of Christ also disinfects us from the results of sin. So it's a both-and. See, it's both sides of a coin. You can't have one without the other. Uh, But some people want a kind of nonviolent, kinder, gentler cross, and it's not available to us in Scripture. You've got to have both of those elements. So true. Uh, Doug, we're going to take a break here in a couple of minutes, but I'm wondering why you think there's this large movement among many evangelicals that don't like this idea of penal substitutionary atonement, and they find it offensive, and they they don't really go to Scripture as much as they talk about church history and church fathers from past centuries. What do you make of that? Well, some people say that the doctrine of propitiation is not deep in the history of the Church. It's more of a doctrine that developed during the Reformation. But in my research, I found that's not true. Not at all. No, it's been affirmed by all the heavyweights (laughs) in, in the history of the Church. I don't have it in front of me, but I have a footnote where I broke I have a sentence where I broke my record for most footnotes in one sentence. (laughs) Fifteen footnotes in one sentence where I say, Augustine held to it, Calvin held to it, Luther held to it, uh, Carl Henry held to it, Francis Schaeffer held to it. We can go back to Clement of Rome in 95, or Ignatius, or Barnabas. It goes on and on, way back, and they're all talking about propitiation. Right. Yeah. And of course, the ultimate case is biblical. So that's where I really rest my case, is on the Scriptures. But if you talk about the witness of the Church, the overwhelming majority of leading thinkers believed in propitiation. So that tells me that if you're going to challenge it or say we got it wrong, the burden of proof is on you. Yeah, amen. All right, let me take a break, Doug. I'll be right back. Dr. Doug Grutheis is my guest. His book is called Christian Apologetics, A Comprehensive Case for Biblical Faith, But we're talking today about atonement. So if you have a question maybe or something you'd like Doug to elaborate on that you've heard him say, 877-933-2484. Let's get it started. Jump in. 
in your car yeah. What's for dinner? Hey. It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Welcome to the show. If you just tuned in, I'm glad you're here. We're talking to Dr. Doug uh, Grotheis. He has written a book on Christian apologetics. It's quite a comprehensive case for biblical faith. It's amazing. And we're talking about atonement today. And Doug, it seems that a lot of people that are not fond of uh, penal substitutionary atonement gravitate more into the Christus Victor camp, uh, which is a, uh, obviously, you know, Bishop Gustav Allen wrote that. And they almost make it sound like it's a competing theory. And I don't really think it is, but I'd love your opinion on that. No, it's not a competing theory at all. Uh, some people say that Christus Victor was the teaching of the early Church, and it's really more of the consensus, and the propitiation idea came later. But there are a number of themes that you find in the Scripture. So a key verse on the Christus Victor, that's the idea that Christ delivers his people from evil and the devil, it would be Colossians two fourteen and 15. Christ, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. So legal indebtedness, that's the forensic part of atonement, Mm -hmm. and that's done through propitiation. And then verse 15, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. That's Colossians 2, 14 and 15. 1 John 3, 8 also says the Son of God came to destroy the devil's works. So, definitely a strong theme in Scripture. We are, apart from Christ, held captive by the world, the flesh, and the devil. And Jesus came to defeat the work of the devil. The first stage of that, of course, is when he endured and prevailed over temptation before his public ministry began. You see that in Matthew 4 and Luke 4. And then through uh, his perfect life, and he showed his authority over demons and Satan through his many exorcisms and healings. But then the cross uh, disarmed the principalities and authorities, making a public spectacle of them, as Scripture says. But that is not at the expense of propitiation. In fact, without propitiation, you know, Satan has a, a case against us, in a sense. You know, look at these sinners. They don't deserve to be saved, but given the substitutionary work of Jesus, uh, he atones for our sin. So they go together. There's one writer, one theologian named Michael Bird, who has a volume called Evangelical Theology. It's in a second edition now. I read the first edition section on the atonement, and he, interestingly, affirms propitiation— but he thinks Christus Victor is the unifying concept for the atonement, and then you can place propitiation, in a sense, under it. I actually think propitiation is the unifying and central idea, but I don't want to minimize any of the other aspects. And there are a few more, if I could just go to that. Yeah, we talked about propitiation— the image of the shrine, a sacrifice for us, expiation, more of an image of a cleansing or a bath, so to speak. And then we have redemption, the buying back. And the image here is the marketplace, that we need to be ransomed from our bondage. So one verse 
or one section here is Galatians 3, 13 through 15. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. We have other language about Jesus ransoming us, uh, delivering us from our bondage, uh, paying the price, redeeming us. You know, when you redeem a slave, you pay a price. It's called manumission. So we could say there is the the manumissional work of Christ, so to speak. He paid the price necessary to redeem us and bring us out of the slave market of sin. And that's another beautiful dimension of his atoning work. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, we have justification. We are made right with God. We're given a new objective standing with God through Christ. So this is the image of the courtroom, and this is very significant, of course, to the Reformed thinkers like Luther and Calvin and later thinkers like Francis Turretin and others. Classic verse on this would be Romans 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. So not only does Christ take our punishment, but he gives us his righteousness. Mm -hmm. That's this great exchange that comes about through his atoning work. Yeah. Doug... I'm just a solid C student, so I got to be careful here. Uh, but when I look at the Christus Victor and I go, well, Jesus destroyed the power of sin. It's no longer going to enslave us because of the, the power of uh, the cross over Satan. I don't know how that would be at all a, a, a competing perspective on penal substitutionary atonement. I just don't see how those two would be competing well, against no, one another. I don't either. Okay, good. I think I think we're just both right about that because we're <laughs> affirming the logic of Scripture. Yeah, a PhD and a C student right together at the same time. This is a new. You have to be right if we got the witness. We got two witnesses. <laughs> I'm going home and journaling tonight. Okay, Jeff's got the next question. Well, I'm the C yeah. plus student, but you, Doug, your description of justification sounds very uh, individual. Like it applies to an individual as opposed to I know some out there are trying to make justification to be some kind of participation in a community. It's more of a community aspect as opposed to an individual. Can you talk about that for a second? Yeah, are you thinking about the new perspective on Paul? I am, exactly. Like with N.T. Wright yeah. and others. Yeah, I think they're wrong. Next question. <laughs> <laughs> so an individual is justified. That's the core question, correct? Yeah, the individual is justified through the work of Jesus Christ. And if we are justified, then we're also now part of the body of Christ. We're part of the temple of God. We're part of the family of God. There's so many images for the church, but no, justification is for individual sinners before the face of God, and it has been wrought for us through the achievement of, of Jesus Christ. So I don't I don't have any sympathy for the, the new perspective on Paul approach about this. I think the Reformation got it right. Very good. Your description of propitiation 
made me think of that modern day hymn in Christ alone. There's some controversy over one of the lines in that hymn where it says, till on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. It, it's, it sounds like you're saying the wrath of God was satisfied. I am, and I sing that hymn with great gusto. Mm. <laughs> but there's some people that say, no, that's really not biblical. That's too violent. Uh, God wouldn't punish anyone for anything. But it's too deep in Scripture. And the logic of it is that only Christ can represent uh, the human race, because he's the God-man. So he's in a position to represent us and be our advocate and to vicariously, that's such an important word, to vicariously take our punishment. He can take our responsibility because he represents the human race. And one way of putting it is that only God could bring salvation, but only a man could pay the price. So Jesus is the God-man, and the theologian that uh, really developed that idea, of course, was uh, St. Anselm in Why God Became Man, and I uh, have benefited from some of his reflections on that as well. But I think that hymn is, is beautiful, and it really gets to the heart of it. Doug, like Bill, I also watched your 45-minute video on the atoning work of Christ on the cross. It is just a comprehensive uh, and very good video. I highly recommend it. You mentioned Second Corinthians 5.21. When I read it in my Bible, it says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. But becoming sin for us has a footnote that says, or a sin offering. Uh, expand on that for me. Right. Now, some people take that verse and say that Jesus became detestable to God, that the Trinity was broken on the cross. Some people even say Jesus became a sinner on the cross, and I don't think that's right. Uh, You can't break the Trinity, because there is one God, and He is eternal, and He exists forever as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They're co-equal, co-eternal, and so on. So the Trinity just cannot be broken. That's impossible. So uh, metaphysically, Uh, Jesus was God's beloved son. He never ceased to be his beloved son, but he took the punishment that we deserve without deserving to be punished. That's the key thing. If he was actually a sinner himself, then he would be deserving of punishment, but he wasn't. So I spent some time on this in the book. Sadly, there are some otherwise really solid Christian thinkers that say the Trinity has been broken at the cross, or that Jesus became a sinner on the cross, or that God the Father hated Jesus when he was on the cross, I think we need to avoid all of those kind of ideas. So I look at that in some detail. I think the better way of understanding it is is he was a sin offering, and uh, he was treated, in a sense, as a sinner for us, but without sinning, of course. He was the spotless, sinless Son of God. So it's a little hard to thread the needle on this, you know. It is a bit mysterious, but I think we have enough information in Scripture to get it right and to avoid uh, some of these uh, really extreme statements that you hear some people make that I don't think are justified. 
Doug, you've been living in academics for a long time. So I would assume that the cross of Christ has always been under attack, but it seems that this topic has raised it to a new level. Any thoughts on that? Yes, well, certainly the cross is the ultimate insult to our pride as sinful human beings who want to live apart from God's authority and who want to atone for our own sin or say we have no sin and make God a liar and so on. So that, you know, Paul says that the, sin, the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. And it's not foolishness because the atonement makes no sense logically, or that there's not good evidence to believe what the Bible says about the atoning work of Christ. It seems foolishness to the one who's not willing to humble himself or humble herself before the holiness of God and come to Christ uh, without one plea, as the old hymn says. But you've got uh, theologians and biblical scholars who might even say that Christ is our Savior and his death was necessary for us uh, to be redeemed, but somehow they're trying to take away this propitiatory propitiatory element. Uh, Or you've got some older criticisms. Uh, One criticism is that if we are completely forgiven through the work of another, and this is not of of, uh, works, then we will not have any concern to do good works. And of course, Paul uh, dealt with that long ago. It's the same grace that sanctifies you that as saves you. So we are saved in order to do good works. We don't do them in order to merit salvation. So Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Verse 9, not by works, so that no one can boast. But then verse 10, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. It's the same divine grace that saves us, also sanctifies us, and motivates us to do good works. But that is the outgrowth or the outflow of having our sins atoned for. It does not provide atonement at all. Mm-hmm. All right, we're going to take a little break. We'll come back in just a minute. Dr. Doug Grudheis is our guest. Christian Apologetics is the name of his book. Be right back. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting myfaithradio.com. I'm back with Dr. Doug Brautheis. We're talking about atonement today. Pretty interesting conversation. If you missed any of it, I can highly recommend you going to the podcast, hearing it from the beginning. You can do that at myfaithradio.com. Doug, during the break, Jeff and I were talking about the payment that was received on the cross, and you had discussed in your video on atonement as to who that payment was received by. Mm-hmm. Yeah, now some people would say that the payment was made to the devil. And I don't think that makes sense, because he doesn't deserve anything. 
this is really a, an inter-Trinitarian transaction, so to speak. So God is perfectly holy and just, and so sin has to be punished. Now, if we provide, uh, if we provide that, so to speak, then we will be punished forever. That's hell. So the only hope we have is if God provides it himself. So the Son comes to die in our place and to pay the penalty. So it's all in restoring us to God, freeing us from the devil, certainly, but not paying the ransom to the devil. That's my best understanding of it. Mm, Very good. So there's a line in Revelation where it says that he, Jesus, uh, purchased men for God from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. So that purchase, which Peter says that the price that was paid seems to be the blood of Christ, uh, that was paid to God. Kind of, you said in an inter, say that again, in an inter-Trinitarian Yeah, the word I used was an inter-Trinitarian transaction, that there was a real problem for God, if you will, and that is, God's justice would condemn us, God's love would save us, but how can God remain just and the justifier of those who trust in Christ? Well, the Son pays the penalty for our sin uh, to the Father, so to speak. So it's not that somehow Satan is owed anything. He's not. He's thoroughly evil. He does have control over people apart from the redeeming work of Christ. So the death of Christ, and also the resurrection of Christ, sets us free from the power of Satan if we trust in Christ. But I don't believe that we were bought out of the slave market of sin by paying Satan anything. That that view doesn't make much sense to me. Some Christians have held that, but uh, I don't think that's the right way to view it. So it's all to be credited to God. Everything that is done is done uh, by God, for God, and for our redemption. So his holiness and his justice and his love are all equally honored, so to speak, are all equally effective in the atoning work of Jesus. You don't have to put one above the other. So some in Christianity turn God into kind of this vengeful angry God that somehow needs to be appeased, you know, for the sins of the world, kind of like the God demanding, you know, some young girl be thrown into a volcano or something. And yet what you're saying is God is the one that provides this. He's not demanding a sacrifice from us. It's God is the one that gives that sacrifice for us, motivated by his love. Right. Exactly so. And that's the difference between pagan concepts of atonement and a biblical concept of atonement. God himself provides the atoning sacrifice through Christ. He doesn't demand that we somehow make atonement. In fact, that's impossible, and that just leads to more evil, because the thing can't be done. We can't atone for our own sin for good works, and we can't uh, put someone else to death ourselves to atone for our sins. It's uh, God himself who comes in Christ and submits himself Uh, to the most horrible death imaginable, that we might be redeemed. Now, it is our sin that put him on the cross, if you want to put it that way. Uh, Christ would not have to go to the cross apart from our own sin. But God, who is love, did not leave us stranded 
and lost in our sin, deserving of punishment. He sent Christ to be the atoning sacrifice for our sin. And that's a glorious thing. When I was researching these two new chapters in Christian apologetics, I wanted to take on the toughest objections to propitiation. And as I did, and as I studied it out, I came away even more committed uh, to the power of Christ's blood, his shed blood for us, his atoning suffering and death. And I really, I really glory in it. Uh, Paul talks about we will boast in this, and we don't boast enough. Uh, we need to, uh, to boast in the cross of Christ and the power of his death and resurrection. It's not just something to be believed. We should believe it. We should receive it, and we should come to Christ as Lord and live for him. Uh, with all of our being. But we should also boast in this. Sometimes in my classes at Denver Seminary, I'll be talking about a scripture or making a particular point, and I'll say, why don't we just boast in the Lord for a while? And all my students look at me like, what? This wasn't in the syllabus. Look at how many times Paul Paul boasts in the Lord. Let's just glory in the greatness of God and in his love uh, to provide sacrifice, sacrificial atonement for such horrible sinners and uh, to promise us that he will keep us. Let's, let's boast in that. Let's not boast in ourselves. Let's boast in the Lord. Doug, does the, do the physical, you've given such a robust and complete picture of this atoning work that happened on the cross. Does Christ's physical scars, do they play any part of this spiritual transaction that took place on the cross? Well, I think in some way, because we have Isaiah that says that, you know, he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. So the way I view it is that his suffering and death was sufficient to atone for our sin. He completely paid the debt, took the punishment, freed us from sin, and every, none of it was wasted. Um, you know, he, he drank the cup for us uh, to the dregs completely. Mm, so good. Yeah. So, yeah. So, the, uh, Doug, some of the revisionists, people that want to kind of go back and have history rewritten, and uh, uh, they, they, they sort of, um, uh, they like this theory that is not penal substitutionary atonement. They, they try to shy away from that. It seems with that shying away from that comes a soft pedal on salvation. They're not, not as interested in, in people having um, a new born-again experience. Well, that could happen. Uh, there are some folks who would still emphasize that Christ is our Savior and our substitute, but they think they can defend that without propitiation. And I don't agree with that at all. But there is this general trend to just soften the character of God and soften what was required for us to be saved. Basically, religion on our uh, nice, kind, and gentle viewpoint. Mm -hmm. And you just have to say, first of all, well, what's true? Uh, what does the Bible say about God and Christ and salvation? And if we believe the Bible is the inspired 
Word of God, and we have reason to believe that, I deal with that in my book, Christian Apologetics, then you just got to accept what it is and then try to understand it instead of saying, well, this view makes me uncomfortable, so I'll kind of shop around and try to find something that makes me more comfortable. Mm-hmm. You know, comfort's very important when you are wearing headphones or earbuds or going to the dentist, but it has nothing to do with truth. So I could be very uncomfortable with something that is flamingly true and important, and I could be very comfortable with a lie. So this is not how we engage in spiritual discernment, what we're comfortable with or uncomfortable with. We have to ask what is true and what is false. Yeah, so good. Where does the evidence lead us? Yeah, so good. Okay, Doug, this has been a really fun hour. Thank you so much for saying yes and making time today. And to talk about your book, I know it's, it is, that book has sold well as it should have, and it's now in its second edition. It's called Christian Apologetics, a Comprehensive Case for Biblical Faith. Emphasis on the comprehensive part. It's a big, thick book. Is it 900 pages? About 850. I still left out a few things. Yeah, right. (laughs) I look forward to third edition. Thank you very much for being uh, with me. And Jeff, thank you for sticking around. Thank you. Thank you, Doug. Okay, you're welcome. All right. Thanks so much, Dr. Doug. Grootheis has been my guest. Again, his book is Christian Apologetics, and that's our show for the day. Thank you to guys for Guide Talk. Uh, Great questions that came in. There was a spillover. I got a couple questions to try to answer next time we do that. And thanks to, to Doug for his amazing hour. Have a great night, everyone. I look forward to being with you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.